Welcome to Battleground Wisconsin. This is Robert Craig, Executive Director of Citizen Action of Wisconsin. We expected to have our usual host, Matt Brusky, but he is off racing with his uh, son, who just became a pro racer, which I'm sure we'll hear about next week. And uh, he has a really bad cell signal. So we had to uh, exonate him for this week. So on shorter notice, it is just me and our Health Citizen Action of Wisconsin's Healthcare Director, Claire Zoutke. Good morning, Claire. Good morning, Robert. But we have plenty of exciting things to talk about nationally where there's real progress for a change. Oh, my goodness, the difference between uh, a Democratic administration that is the most progressive since the 1960s and, uh, and, quite frankly, what we see in Wisconsin, which is divided government between the anti-government, anti-democratic uh, right-wing Republicans and, uh, and Governor Evers uh, is a very different scenario as we move into the budget process. But the big news, Claire, the huge news is the pass of the re- passing of the uh, American Recovery Plan, Rescue Plan, the COVID uh, recovery bill. It's really the biggest sized expenditure by a president during a crisis at the beginning of an administration ever. Uh, in fact, it, it's beyond that even what F. Franklin Delano Roosevelt did in the very early de- uh, you know, days of the New Deal. And in fact, it is so broad, so big that people who like the top economic advisor, one of them to Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, Larry Summers, is one of the primary critics and is being quoted by Republicans, which tells you how much progress the progressive surge in Democratic Party has made in the direction of the entire party, including more establishment moderate Democrats like President Biden. So what the politics of this, Claire, before we get to some of the details and get into Wisconsin, are interesting. It is broadly popular. But Republicans uh, voted against it completely. Not a single Republican vote in the House and Senate for something that even Republicans support, a majority of Republicans. And what this says to me, I want to get your thought, is that they rely so much on negative partisanship, which is a fancy political science word for they foment hate in others, hate about Democrats, about people of color, about women, about everyone that is in the Democratic coalition, uh, people in cities, if they're appealing to rural areas, that is so great that they expect that they will still attract their voters back, even if they take a vote that's unpopular at a time when their own working class voters support this overwhelmingly and are in great need. Uh, am I being too harsh, Claire, or is that, would that be your interpretation of, because there have been a lot of pundits who have been confused including Claire uh, McCaskill, the former senator from Missouri, about wh- why is the, what is the politics of this? I don't even understand anymore their politics. That's my only explanation, that they're still, they say their trust, they can use division, divide and conquer, dog whistle racism to gen up enough hatred of the other side, the, the alleged immigration threat, uh, that doesn't matter what they do on policy. No, I think that's totally accurate. And, um, uh, you know, I think they're they're mad and they don't want to give the president a win or or maybe they know that the president was going to win on this on this point. And so they might as well just 
you know, make it as painful as possible for the other side. And uh, I mean, that's certainly something that we know a little bit about here in Wisconsin. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I don't understand why people wouldn't, um, elected officials, no matter their party, would uh, object to doing things for their constituents. And, um, you know, the Democrats have said, uh, basically, you know, this is a this is a political document for us, right? Like it is in not only the best interest of uh, the American people to put money in their pockets and, um, you know, help them support their kids and make sure that they have enough to eat and, um, you know, support the local government's services that they depend upon, etc. Um, not only is that the right thing to do, but also, you know, looking to looking to the midterms, we don't want to make the same mistake that uh, we did in 2008 in the economic crisis by not giving people enough stimulus funds, right? So, so they're already looking forward to the midterm saying like, we don't want to have another 2010. We want to, where there's sort of a, a backlash against the Democrats after only a couple years in power, we want to make sure that we are looking forward and, and being as big and bold as, as possible. And uh, you know the Republicans are not making the same the same calculation, um, and that's uh, it's a shame because the people who suffer are their constituents. Uh, yeah, you raise a really important point there, Claire, and that is all Democrats, progressives knew it then, but the mainline, more moderate Democrats have learned the lesson from 2009-2010, where they didn't go big enough. And they tried to negotiate with the Republicans who were not serious. They didn't get Republican votes. And all it did is slow them down and sabotage their own stimulus plan so that unemployment was left at nearly 10%. And they knew they were doing it, and they did it anyway, their, the economic team of Barack Obama. And they knew it would make it very hard to win the 2020 election. So if you want to think about things like the Tea Party, the gerrymandering of states like Wisconsin, that is partly because they went too small. And to their credit, they learned the lesson. And I've run this by some Democrats, major Democratic leaders in Wisconsin, and they also think they've learned the lesson from how Democrats didn't act with boldness enough when they had full control in Wisconsin before, before Scott Walker was elected in 2010. But what the National Democrats did helped elect Scott Walker in 2010 and that horrendous state assembly we're still dealing with. But it seems to me it also changes political calculations. You continue in Wisconsin and nationally to hear that we need bipartisanship, that if we move to the center, we'll get Republicans. You know what? I think COVID relief proves we're not going to get them, that they want power back and they're going to oppose anything coming from Democrats and vilify it and call it socialist and rely upon negative partisanship. And therefore, when we get to the state budget fight in Wisconsin, we need to remember we have all these people on the inside. A lot of this stuff I can't repeat on the podcast because it's, it's inside politics stuff, thinking they can change the policy of Evers enough to get Robin Voss and to get the Senate and, and uh, get, to get Devin LeMayhew, the, the Senate majority leader. And they're not thinking about the way modern Republican politics operates. But with that, I think I want to talk with you, Claire, about some of the policy. We'll probably be talking about different policies in the relief plan for a while because there's so much in there. A lot of it hasn't got enough attention. What's beginning to get attention, we know the fight for $15 minimum wage is not in there and still needs to happen. We've talked about that on Battleground Wisconsin. 
But what's gotten much more attention since then is the child tax credit, which will uh, reduce child poverty by half. It's amazing. And it makes the child poverty tax credit that was created in the Clinton administration in a very regressive way only went to people who paid taxes because it wasn't refundable. In other words, if you owed no taxes, you got nothing. And if you owed little taxes, you got very little. And by the way, when I say pay no taxes, low-income people pay a ton of property taxes through their rents, sales taxes. They don't just don't pay income taxes. They still pay a higher percentage in their ta- of their income than wealthy people, which is forgotten. By, and and it, by actually, mis- people are misled by Republicans on that. Uh, so that is huge, the child tax credit. And it's only for a year, but the Democrats want to make it permanent, and that's a huge redistribution of income to the people who need it most have been losing ground for gener- for a couple generations now. But then health care. And I, I want to start in, there are some major incremental improvements in the health care system and some that have major implications for the state budget fight, Claire. So I was hoping you would review those for our listeners. Certainly. And I'm going to take a stab at some framing for you here, Robert, to bridge the sort of bipartisan, partisan conversation around politics that we've just had in the policy piece, which is, you know, everybody says that they want by bipartisanship. We all say that. And yes, in an ideal world, we would get things and we would get them through a bipartisan process. But when the two things are often mutually exclusive, people, what they really want is things. And they want elected officials to get things done and they want things in their pockets. And so um, I am glad that we are in a place where we now get to talk about the things that people will get. Um, And when it comes to health care, there are a few, um, there's certainly a lot, like you said, um, in the American Rescue Plan, but there's three things that that I'll touch on. Um, And one of them, uh, the first one, is something we talked about before as we we believed that we would get some health care subsidies through for people who purchase their insurance through the ACA marketplace. And those were in fact adopted and they are substantial savings for uh, people who have to purchase their insurance. So um, for example, a person with a $55,000 income, right? Like a solidly middle-class person um, right now, if they uh, were to buy a, a benchmark silver plan on the ACA marketplace, it would cost them about $970 in premiums. And under the American Rescue Plan that just passed and Biden is going to sign this weekend, um, it will go down to $390. I mean, you're talking about a 600, just about a $600 difference a month. I mean, that is a tremendous amount of savings. Um, and if, for people who are getting their insurance through COBRA, um, they for one year are gonna have um, no premiums. And let's take a quick break and you'll tell, you'll remind you of what COBRA is uh, when we come back uh, to Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to Battleground Wisconsin. This is Robert Craig from Citizen Action of Wisconsin, uh, joined by Claire Zabke, our the healthcare director here at Citizen Action of Wisconsin. And we had laid out in the first segment the politics of the bizarre Washington politics of the Recovery Act and how it passed and how bold it is. And we were starting to get into the healthcare numbers, and Claire had talked about how it enhances the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare in the marketplace by making the subsidies uh, 
uh, uh, basically available to more people and much more generous, that is to afford insurance. Uh, but then she was getting into what happens when people uh, lose their jobs, the COBRA system, where you get to buy your, insur- uh, your insurance that you, out of your own pocket that your employer was providing you for a certain amount of time. So there, this also impacts all the unemployed people uh, who are on COBRA policies, right, Claire? Yes, yes. And uh, this is a big deal right now because, of course, there are so many people who lost their employment during the pandemic in the course of the past year, which, wow, it's been a year. It's almost uh, it's almost unim- <laughs> unimaginable if, if we hadn't lived through it, right, that it's been a year that we've been dealing with um, the coronavirus pandemic. Um, and, but a lot of people still haven't gotten their, their work back, uh, their employment back. And um, don't either have the income to be able to afford insurance or lost their employer-sponsored insurance. And so for folks who lost their employer-sponsored insurance, uh, COBRA um, helps them buy or allows them to to continue their their coverage, right? But the problem is it's often very expensive and people don't have jobs and so they don't have an income to be able to afford COBRA, right? Um, And so it's sort of this vicious vicious circle. Um, And so the American Rescue Plan says for a year, we will cover the premiums of your COBRA plan so you can continue having health coverage. Um, both of these, both of these two provisions, the, the COBRA provision and um, the subsidies for the ACA marketplace, I think it's important to provide um, uh, one additional piece of framing though, right? So this is, this is something good that the American Rescue Plan does and that the president and Congress have done, or sorry, the Democrats in Congress have done to um, to give some financial relief to people, um, but but they are not structural, substantive changes in the way the American healthcare system operates. It's important for us as progressives who are pushing for universal, affordable, and high-quality coverage, um, and uh, to to remember that uh, the price of health coverage and the price of insurance in this country is really, really high, and. Um, these these things do nothing to lower the price of coverage. It just um, lowers how much people of a certain sort of income bracket um, have to pay for their coverage or how much people, um, uh, what percentage of paying for that coverage should should be of their uh, total income, for example, right? Um, so, so really the federal government is just um, funneling a bunch of money to insurance companies and Wall Street to ensure that people um, have a little bit of relief, but it's not changing the actual amount that we as a whole country spend on coverage. Um, And I think that's an important perspective for us to hold on to as we continue to fight for more comprehensive reform like Medicare for all or a robust public option that would um, squeeze um, private insurance. And Robert, I know you care a lot about this, so I don't know if you have anything you want well, to Well, I was just going to add to Claire's point that according to the well-known uh, insurance industry whistleblower, former insurance executive Wendell Potter, it amounts to a $48 billion in taxpayer money uh, funneled to insurance companies who have and insurance companies and the uh, administrative cost of doing claims from medical providers means there's 30% overhead, whereas you have 2% overhead in Medicare. So it'd be much cheaper to do this through Medicare, or we can talk about it later a little, the equivalent in Wisconsin, which is the Badger Care 
uh, the Badger Care Public Option Plan that is in part of Governor Evers' budget, and which our members at Cis National Wisconsin have been urging him to adopt and is in this state budget. Now, you mentioned, but, it, but it's important now. People need help now. People need health insurance. So it's entirely okay in an emergency plan just to use the existing Affordable Care Act, but we also need to evolve to a more and more public system. We can hold both ideas at the same time. The yes. how we use the current system now to save people's lives, but then where we want to actually go. Um, did you want to say something before I transition to uh, Medicaid expansion? No, that was great. I was I was just agreeing with you. Oh, Medicaid expansion, though, it also impacts states like Wisconsin that did not take the Medicaid money. And just remember, fiscally speaking, that is the state budget. Ours is the worst in the country because we did it in a way that cost much more than the states like Texas or Alabama. We actually pay more taxpayer money in Wisconsin to cover fewer people. So this changed the incentives even further. We've already lay, left you know, something like $1.5 billion on the table since Scott Walker first rejected the, uh, the, the extra money to, to expand BadgerCare and the Affordable Care Act. But it's, is it even more now, Claire? Yes, it is tremendously more. We would get pretty much that same amount again over the course of just two years if we were to expand now because this bill, the American Rescue Plan that just passed, includes a, we'll call it a sweetener, a little bit of financial incentive uh, for states like Wisconsin that have not expanded their Medicaid programs, so for us Badger Care, right, um, to, to do so right now. And if states do so now after the bill is signed, then um, they will get a tremendous amount of increased funding from the federal government for all of our Medicaid uh, programs for two years. And um, I've seen two different estimates, one from the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities, which is a highly reputable national nonpartisan think tank and research center um, that estimates for Wisconsin that would come out to a billion dollars. Um, and then late this week, the um, uh, the legislature's Legislative Fiscal Bureau put out a memo and a report saying that um, that would be estimated to be $1.6 billion for um, the state of Wisconsin. So regardless, between a billion and a $1.6 billion of extra funding coming into the state is a game changer. And, and not just for the Medicaid budget and not just even for the health services budget, but that has a ripple effect throughout the entire budget. And so um, I mean, think about how much extra stuff we could do with with at least a billion dollars. Um, it it really changes the game, and I hope it changes some of the Republican legislators' calculus on um, whether the state should uh, finally, finally adopt Medicaid expansion. Now, Claire, that's an interesting point. It's a game changer if it happens. It's essentially an over billion dollar profit for the state in return for covering more people. I mean, think about that. We're gonna give away, uh, and by the way, the Legislative Fiscal Bureau, the higher number, 1.6 billion, they're the official budget scorekeeper for Wisconsin, so they're what counts as far as state budget calculations. So, and anyway, we all know that those numbers are kind of like um, a lot of financial numbers. It's whatever the official accountants say they are, that it is. Um, though it can change over time, over a budget process. They may revise it before the budget is done. Uh, but 
we talked in the first segment about the changing uh, political theory of the far right Republicans, the anti-democratic Republicans, and the res- and that they don't actually care if they do bad policy because they think they can use uh, divide and conquer to win anyway. So, does it really is it a game changer? Do you think for Robin Voss and his caucus in the state assembly, gerrymandered state caucus, right? That wouldn't be in power if it wasn't for the the the, the unfair ma- uh, legislative maps, and the Senate caucus led by Devin LeMahieu. Is it a game changer for them? since they play by different rules than, uh, than normal people and normal politics. Man, I wish I knew. If I, if I knew that, I would be, I don't know, sitting somewhere making money off of doling out my spectacular insights um, into the minds of uh, Republican legislators. Um, no, I don't know. Um, I, I would hope that there might be a few, a number of folks, um, maybe even a sizable number of folks who behind closed doors know that this is the right thing to do and, and know that this is um, good policy and, and that in some way care about their constituents and about our state. And that there might be one person, maybe if we're lucky, two people who'd be willing to say that publicly. And, and if if we can if we can show enough encouragement for one or two people to break ranks and say publicly, like this is just the right thing to do for our state. But here's what happens: since we're we're the ones, only the Democratic Party, as currently constituted, is trying to defend the American Republic. And having a democratic form of government, which we will we'll get to a little bit in the next segment, uh, and which I think our listeners know. But if they won't, if they if if we play by by chess and they play a totally different game, they play backgammon, and they just dig their heels in and give away the 1.6 billion dollars, Claire. Then what happens is only way we can like restore democracy, other than obviously we have to protect the right to vote is to set this up in terms of our advocacy, in terms of our clarity, to make it clear to the public what they did, and then get the public to vote the people who did something like that out of office. That is it. And so if they won't act, then that is the only recourse in a, in a, demo, in a, in a democratic form of government. But with that, we got to take a quick break. We will be back, right back at Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to Battleground Wisconsin. This is Robert Craig, Executive Director of Citizen Action of Wisconsin, joined by Claire Zoutke, uh, the Healthcare Director at Citizen Action of Wisconsin. And we were talking about the incredibly bold and historically important American Rescue Plan that just passed the House and is in, and President Biden will be signing uh, reportedly on Friday. And then we were talking about the state implications and the huge amount of money, more money on the table to expand Badger Care and whether it would influence the Republicans. Now, I think we, uh, having run the course, we do not know yet. Uh, we also need to think about other major federal reform that is moving uh, right now. So we now, this is not the end of the Biden agenda, even though this is very large, the Recovery Act, it's only the beginning. Uh, at this moment, we are going to have a huge fight over voting rights and campaign finance reform. Uh, House Resolution 1 and Senate Bill 1 would 
uh, prevent all of these states from uh, passing a number of laws to make it much harder to vote so they can try to rig the election and would prevent them from using the redistricting process to win back Congress, the House of Representatives, regardless of how the popular vote goes. And But the problem is it'll require modification or elimination of the filibuster, which a few uh, hold out moderate Senate Democrats have refused to do so far. You can't because no Republican will support this because they have a power interest in making it harder for people to vote, mostly black and brown people and low income people from voting in elections and in gerrymandering, rigging the, the, the legislative maps. Uh, so that's going to be a big battle. The House, it kind of felt was onto the radar screen, passed the most sweeping labor law reform. It's called the PRO Act, the Protect the Right to Organize Act, since the 1930s. And that goes to the Senate and also cannot pass without filibuster reform. And when I say filibuster reform, if you just went back to its traditional mode where they got to hold the floor and delay but couldn't just kill a bill if they did, if you don't have 60 votes, that would be the traditional filibuster. And by the way, the filibuster itself is not part of the Constitution, but the current filibuster isn't even the tradition of the filibuster for most of American history. And so there is that question um, that is that is going to be very, very weighty. And then uh, a huge infrastructure plan that will include jobs and climate and a whole lot of other things that could be up to four trillion is on the agenda for Biden and the details still being worked out. And all of that will occur probably in the next two months. In fact, for budgetary reasons, it, the big spending issues almost have to be resolved or at least the financial parts of it resolved in the next two months. So we are about to have something like the early New Deal or, or the early Lyndon Johnson administration of the Great Society at the national level. But at the state level, we're going to be plugging around along now with the Republicans saying they're going to throw out Governor Evers' budget and write something completely different, right? And they also are trying to rig the maps again, Claire. You probably saw that uh, there's a lawsuit to block the legislative Republicans from hiring outside lawyers for redistricting. And that's because last time they used over a million dollars in public money uh, to do a secretive process that created the worst, the most unfair possible legislative map so that they could never lose their majorities in the House, in the Assembly and Senate. So, Claire, uh, that obviously, just like the, the democracy reform is a big issue at national level, redistricting and, and them trying to make an end run around Governor Evers is that going to be a huge issue in Wisconsin that's going to affect what we can do in Wisconsin for the next decade? Because we only we only redistrict once every 10 years after the uh, census. So, Claire? Yeah, I think the lawsuit um, to to stop the outside hire of lawyers is really important. Um, I think the the report from or the article from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel that I read said that um, under one contract, Republicans had uh, proposed, I think it was uh, spending two hundred thousand dollars a month to some Washington D.C. law firm that would help them uh with this project to the tune of almost a million dollars uh, once once all was said and done. And um, we know from uh, 2011 when this happened that uh, that there were emails leaked saying, you know, we want, I want this block um, added to my district or I want this neighborhood cut out of my district. And um, 
And that that uh, very explicit gerrymandering, um, no matter what the United States Supreme Court says, um, is 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 unconscionable. Um, if your priority is creating a solid functioning government, um, but if as the Republicans are interested in um, your priority is securing power for yourself, um, then you're incentivized to do something like, again, spend a million dollars on lawyers out of Washington, D.C., who have represented Donald Trump and the Republican National Committee to help you um, keep that power. I think this is setting up a fight between the legislature and the governor, and I'm hoping that the governor will dig his heels in on this and um, try to ensure that we have at least better maps than last time. You know, and it's not hyperbole to say that the modern Republican Party, the virulent right wing brand of conservatism that's taken over the party entirely uh, now doesn't believe in democracy. They don't think they can hold power if a majority rules and therefore they want to rig the system in every possible way. Uh, And one of those includes gerrymandering, but one of them includes all sorts of ways to make it harder for people to vote who they think would be more likely to vote against them. And that's especially low-income and black and brown people and people who live in in cities. Uh, So we know that's going on at the national and state level. There's a wave of of attacks on the right to vote across the country, uh, which have got over 250, I believe, according to um, the Brennan Center so far across the country. And it certainly refutes the U.S. Supreme Court, the right-wing Supreme Court's uh, view that you didn't need the Voting Rights Act anymore. In fact, there's a case to even weaken the Voting Rights Act further, Claire, at the national level. Uh, So this really does come down to the Democrats showing they can govern and can restore basic democratic norms in this country. Uh, So we have all of that, right? We also have a unique situation here, Claire. I don't know if you saw the news that you might not have, uh, that you probably did, that the Republicans in the legislature want control over how Governor Evers spends the the COVID rescue plan money. And so, you know, they've suddenly become big big, uh, advocates of legislative supremacy. I have a question. Do you think that if it was a Republican governor and a Democratic legislature, they would be all about legislative supremacy or they'd be talking about executive supremacy like they do at the national level where they talk, they talk about the president having absolute power when it's a Republican like Nixon or Trump or uh, W. Bush. What do you think, Claire? Oh, there's no way they, there's no way they'd be trying to wrest this power from a Republican governor's hands. And I mean, just add and, and to give people some context about what this relief looks like, the American Rescue Plan provided um, the state provides will provide allocate the Wisconsin state government three point two. A billion dollars um, through the American Rescue Plan. And then there's another about two and a half or so that go to uh, local governments, um, cities and counties around the state. But what they're trying to say is, right, is we should take $3.2 billion and just play with it. And Claire, right, their party all voted against it, every single member of the House and the Senate, but they want to spend the money. And we've already seen at the national level, as was predicted by many Democrats, some Republican officeholders who voted against it tried to take credit for its provisions, starting out with the senator from Mississippi, but there'll be more of that and going to ribbon cuttings. We know they'll all do that and try to associate themselves with good things that they were against. 
And yep. so now these guys want to spend federal money that they're against, right? Yep. But that Governor Rivers is not going to give in. And so he is going to make these decisions. And then, as you pointed out, local governments also have a lot of money coming directly to them and school districts and other municipal entities in Wisconsin. So could you quick run through uh, we don't want to discourage people from engaging the budget process because these are still politicians. And if they see enough of a public wave on something, they may give in. But if they don't, it, having a public wave helps set this issue up for elections. And we that's our only recourse if they're going to ignore good policy and ignore the public. So we know where the Joint Finance Committee meetings are. And I guess they're, they're, we're in a pandemic, but they're in person. Is that right, Claire? Well, three of them are. <laughs> and um, so what the Joint Finance Committee announced um, on Wednesday of this week, so this might be a little bit of old news by the time y'all are listening to it, is that they're going to have four um, uh, hearings, the Joint Finance Committee will, our state's budget committee. Um, three of them will be in person, entirely in person, and one of them will be um, uh, virtual. So the three in-person ones will take place in Menominee, outside of uh, Eau Claire, uh, Rhinelander and Whitewater. And then the one virtual will be sort of statewide. And, and I cannot tell you how stressed I am as an organizer about that because there's there are no hearings um, near um, large urban areas. And um, so every, and the three in-person hearings don't have any virtual components. So everybody who doesn't want to risk their lives during the pandemic to speak to their elected officials and everyone who lives in an urban area is all going to be funneled to this one virtual day and have to sit in front of their com computer for from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. waiting for their turn to testify. These people are not interested in hearing your thoughts because they're making this process uh, just really inaccessible. Yes, and I doubt they even would require masks uh, if they don't have to. So with that, we get to take a break. We have a very special guest in the next segment, uh, the mayor of Wausau, uh, uh, Katie Rosenberg, who is going to talk about a very progressive policy that we wouldn't usually associate with the Wausau area, though Wausau does have a proud progressive tradition. So we'll let you know what that is after the break. Welcome back to Battleground Wisconsin. This is Robert Craig, Executive Director of Citizen Action Wisconsin, uh, and co-hosted here by Claire Zoutke, uh, the healthcare director for CIS National Wisconsin. And as promised before the break, we have a special guest. It is uh, Mayor Katie Rosenberg, the mayor of Wausau and a member of Citizen Action's North Central Wisconsin organizing co-op and organizing co-ops are our chapter system. So Katie, thanks for your membership, but then also even more, thanks for your leadership and stepping up and being a mayor at this difficult time. Okay, thanks. Uh, you know, I, I wonder some days about my sanity, but I'm really glad that I have this job right now. It's really important. So, Mayor Rosenberg, uh, some people are surprised that a very important progressive policy, the kind of thing that is discussed by the most progressive members of Congress, uh, is actually being piloted in Wausau, and that's a guaranteed income. And there's a lot of thought that if you had a guaranteed income, uh, at a certain level, that would give families so much more breathing room that they'd be better off, better able to plan their careers, look after their kids, and it would actually improve the stability of, of the family and actually allow them also 
not only to be healthier and for their kids to, uh, to perform better in school, but it would also put them in a position uh, to line up better careers and, uh, and, and be able to have, you know, successful work lives. So it isn't uh, such as the fear goes, some kind of, um, you know, it's just going to have people sitting on the couch and taking this guaranteed income from the government. Right. And so we know why some people find it odd that Wausau is doing this, but Wausau has a proud trad- progressive tradition, it is the home of uh, stomping ground of David Obi and a lot of other progressives, was a stronghold for fighting Bob LaFalla and his son, uh, uh, fighting Bob Jr. and many others. And so, Katie, uh, could you tell us a little bit about the program and how Wausau got involved as a pilot program? I know it was piloted out in California first, but now there's some other cities taking it on, and Wausau is one of them. Yeah, so um, I'm really lucky to uh, have been connected with former Stockton Mayor Michael Tubbs, and he's really been the guy kind of pushing this this program. You know, he started in Stockton, and then he thought it was so amazing that he, you know, started pushing other mayors to be a part of this. He started this Mayors for a Guaranteed Income. So in addition to offering pilot programs across the country to various uh, cities, you know, they're also, we're also, I'm a member of it. I, once I found out it existed, I was like, sign me up. I am there. Um, We also um, lobby for, you know, money and funds to help families. You know, we really, we took out an ad in the Washington Post and Times um, to make sure that uh, Congress knew that, families need that extra income. Um, and we even push it a little further that maybe we should have recurring checks through the rest of the pandemic. Um, but so I've got, I've been connected with Michael Tubbs and his program um, and, you know, started asking questions. Um, how are these pilot programs funded? Like that was the number one question. Like it all sounds awesome. How is this funded? Um, and it, as it turns out, you know, having a having a contact in Stockton, California in the shadow of Silicon Valley is a pretty good thing sometimes. So you have a lot of kind of tech industry folks who are really interested in this concept um, and they're funding these programs across the country. And so once I found out we could get a $100,000 grant to try this in Wausau, I was all on board and I had our city council talk about it. Um, And basically what we're doing is we'll use that money to give um, likely around 20 um, individuals um, $500 a month for a year and a half. And we'll, we're still kind of ironing out the criteria for how you, um, how you would be accepted into this program. We want to keep it pretty broad um, because again, this is a scientific experiment in addition to um, offering social good. So we're working also with the University of Pennsylvania to collect some data, um, look at how people are spending the money. And just last week, um, some of that data from the Stockton demo was released and it was so promising. You know, you talked about the fears that some folks have of, you know, oh, people get this money and they won't even wanna work. And really, I think we all understand that $500 a month is not enough to live on. (laughs) It's barely, and I don't know if you can even get daycare uh, for $500 a month. I know you can't pay rent for $500 a month. So this is a supplement. And what they found in that data was that people were using it as such. They were spending most of the money on food and clothing, um, paying down debt. um, And then some of them are even able to save up maybe for a more stable home. Um, And, you know, we talked a lot about, you know, what is this forced vulnerability when you're in poverty? You know, you're forced to maybe stay in scenarios uh, where it's unsafe. Maybe you're with um, an abusive spouse. Maybe you're staying on somebody's couch. And this really allowed people the freedom to get out of those situations. Um, It allowed them to um, 
stay home with their kids and do homework instead of working three jobs. So I'm really pumped about the data I'm seeing. It's very promising. Um, and I just, I cannot wait to start it in Wausau. And I, I'm trying to be a little patient while we come up with the right plan and the right partners. Um, but, you know, in the next few months, you'll be hearing some pretty exciting news. This is so exciting. Uh, I'm curious what the reaction within your community and with maybe other folks around the state whom, with whom you interact uh, has been. Yeah, so, you know, right off the bat, people are like, this isn't real. But no, why would anyone give us money to give money to other people? And that, so, you know, there was a kind of a learning process and, you know, um, understanding that it's backed by, you know, scientific institutions that are using that data to, to kind of come up with policy that will better inform our federal government. Um, imagine that scientifically informed policy. I love it. Um, so there was some of that. Um, people got on board. Our council unanimously supported it. Um, and then, you know, then the grumbling kind of started with um, maybe the the folks in, on the other side of the aisle who who don't want WASA to be a part of this at all. They don't like the idea. They don't like the concept. Um, so, you know, I've had to do some discussions. You know, the chamber called me in and they're like, what is this all about? <laughs> what are you doing to us? And, you know, once I said, you know, this is, this is a pilot, this is not funded by taxpayer dollars, this is really exciting, you know, there's still a little grumbling from the people that are just philosophically opposed to that, and I can't help them, they're just going to have to get over it. Um, but I think overall people are excited. I would have said, what am I doing? I'm giving people $500 more a month to spend <laughs> in your stores, Chamber of Commerce members. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I think that the majority of them really kind of got it, what it was all about at that point. You know, again, though, there's always going to be that kind of grumbly, whatever it is, 20 or 30 percent. It seems to me that this is a smart idea for breaking down some of those ideological barriers. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't limit these uh, to conservatives. I think sometimes moderate Democrats and progressives have these ideas of how things work that even though we're the side that prides ourselves on facts, but you need to test your assumptions, mm -hmm. right? And this tests the question as to what happens if you give people a basic amount of money so that they're not, you know, at the brink where they are deciding every month whether to pay the utility bills, the childcare bill, the rent, et cetera. And what that does, not only for their quality of life, but for the opportunity they and their families have. And since we claim to believe in the American dream, we need to be open to modernized ways to try to achieve it. And so it seems like it's not only good from a policy standpoint, it's very good from a public education standpoint, because frankly, it, it, it educates potentially everyone who's open to edu being educated about the real lives of, of, of so many families in our, our society with our increased economic insecurity that live at the brink. And a lot of assumptions are made all the way around, which are actually not the case about what, what's happening in these families and what their, their, their lives are like. Would you agree with that, Mayor? No, I definitely agree with that. And you know, there's some areas, you know, this isn't, I'm not really diving into 
okay, does this program replace uh, certain social programs? But you know, that's a discussion that's being had. If we're seeing such good results with this program, maybe it is a better way to implement some of these programs. And actually like some of that administrative stuff, you know, we're a little bit overbearing about what we force on people when we are like, all right, you qualify for Badger Care, but also you can't make this much money. And, and if you get a raise because you're good at your job, um, you're, you're not going to get health insurance anymore. Like that's insane to me. We should want people to level up in those ways. Um, and so if this kind of maybe putting fewer barriers on this kind of a, a program is going to help people just across the board. They're going to be mentally better, feeling better about themselves. I mean, that was one of the really amazing um, facts that I saw last week in that data was that people just felt better. They were happier. They were less stressed. I mean, your brain isn't constantly in survival mode. You're actually able to think about a couple of months from now, maybe a year from now. I take that for granted that I'm, I like to plan five years out. Um, but, you know, if you're working on survival, that's not happening. And you point out it's administrative efficiency. It actually frees up more money because you don't need all the stringent barriers we have to even getting unemployment. I mean, it's like you're, I don't know, trying to get a national security clearance because I've looked through that website just to see what the unemployed in this pandemic experience. Uh, So there's that. And in addition, it, it might affect other programs, right? But this might be since uh, everyone claims to believe in efficiency, this might be the most efficient, effective investment we could make with our resources, not to mention that it, that it spurs the economy because people at the brink will spend the money in the community. They will not invest it overseas in a way that never benefits our society like the wealthiest do. <laughs> I think you're onto something here. <laughs> so I think it's great. And I think Madison is also doing it. Uh, Mayor uh, Conray Rhodes. So we have two in Madison, but it's good. It's not only Madison because people say, ah, it's Madison. Yeah. You know, so it's good to have Wausau We're and Madison. Data points good in care. Wausau too. It's going to be really exciting. <laughs> yeah, I love it. And so uh, we are about out of time. That really went by. Well, so uh, thank you for joining us on Battleground Wisconsin. And thank you to uh, Mayor Katie Rosenberg, the mayor of Wausau and assistant action member. And we will be back next week. So the pandemic's still on, everyone. Be safe.